Hello and welcome to the Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Mary Jane Laurie and this is our second Women in Agriculture podcast. Today I've travelled to Granton on Spey to meet Lynn Castles and Sandra Bears outside somewhere working away. Um, they're the stars of This Farming Life, award winning crofters at Lynn Breck Croft. They wrangle pigs, poultry, and highland cows and turn honey into money. And we're here today to chat about their croft and business. So, hello, Liz. Hello, nice to meet you. <laughs> Can you start by introducing yourself and your croft a little bit? Yeah, uh, so my name is uh, Lynn Castles and I own Limbrick Croft with Sandra, who's out doing all the work while I sit and chat <laughs> with you. Um, and we bought Limbrick in March 2016, so just about three and a half years ago. We kind of came to farming, crofting, I guess, by accident. Uh, we were living and working in the south of England and we'd been down there for a few years working for the National Trust. And I guess we had a bit of a, really, I guess it was a bit of a pipe dream at the time of finding a little bit of land and, and, mm-hmm. um, and living, off, you know, living, off, living a dream, really, and you know, yeah. growing veggies and that sort of thing. And so we moved to Scotland. We identified that Scotland was the place we wanted to be and moved up here, found Limbrek. It was 150 acres, so much bigger than what we ever anticipated. And we couldn't afford it at the time. But I guess, you know, the heavens collided and we were able to make it happen. And so we've got this amazing kind of corner of Scotland, which we now call home. So it's 150 acres. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very big croft. Yeah. But we think it's kind of typically Scottish. So it has some in-by ground. It has some woodland. It has some bog and it has some heathery hill. So really what we've tried to do since we've been at Limbrek is to just really get to know it as a, as a, as a kind of a parcel of land. And from day one, try and figure out, you know, what it is that we're going to do and how it is that we're going to kind of make this vision that we have happen. Yeah, great. Okay. So what attracted you to the career in farming? So you obviously worked in a sort of outdoorsy job before. What is it that made you think we want to be crofters or farmers? Well, I suppose really whenever we started to look for a bit of land, um, we weren't really specifically wanting to get into farming or crofting. It was more, I guess just having a closer relationship with the land so mm-hmm. growing your own food you know raising your own animals for meat you know living much more kind of with natural cycles I guess and then whenever we were looking for a bit of land we came across a small croft up in in Sutherland and we went to see it and it wasn't the one for us but it was it started to kind of introduce us to the idea of becoming crofters and so we started mm-hmm. to read a lot more into the cultural aspect the historical aspect and actually what we realised was that crofting uh, as a way of life was a kind of perfect fit of what it was that we were looking to do. I think at Limbrek what we've had to kind of do is really upscale it because we have 150 acres of a croft rather yeah. than, you know, five or ten, which yeah. is what you kind of typically get. So for us, what we were able to do was kind of keep all the kind of traditional elements and the cultural elements of crofting, but yet kind of use our, I guess, experience in more landscape scale management of conservation to bring the two together into a, a bit of a kind of a farm croft setup. Yeah. Okay. So your background's in conservation. Did you study that at university or college, or did you go straight from school into conservation? So I did a whole range of things. Okay. Uh, I studied and trained as an archaeologist. Right. So I did a, a, um, a degree and a master's in archaeology. I kind of started to get into woodland archaeology, which was what led me into conservation, and I, I ended up doing a, um, a an apprenticeship to get into the National Trust. Sandra was slightly different. She trained as a librarian. Oh, really? <laughs> That's even more different than archaeology. Yeah, I can imagine that. Um, crofting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So she trained as a librarian in Switzerland, which is where she's from. Oh, okay. She then took a break from that and worked for a few years in Canada on cattle ranches. Right. So she got a bit of livestock handling experience there where they yeah. did it all on horseback. Yeah. 
and then she kind of went back to working in, in the kind of the book field and then applied to become a, a, a an apprentice with the National Trust as well. Right. And so that's where we ended up meeting. That's what you met. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then the stream sort of progressed from there. I, I think, think so. Yeah. 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 So what challenges have you faced since starting up your craft? My goodness, I mean, we've faced so many challenges since starting up. Um, you know, whenever you you buy somewhere, you know, you feel very lucky to be the kind of, I guess, custodian of it. But at the very start, we had no money. In fact, we actually had a debt that we had to pay off. Okay. And we didn't have any jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so it was, a real, it was a real challenge. But at the same yeah. time, we were delighted to be here. Yeah. So, you know, from day one, we were, you know, we knew that we had to not just pay off our debt, but we had to build a business from scratch that was going to wipe its face because that's where we wanted to be at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think financial challenge has always been has always been there at the back of our minds, and it's always been something that day to day we still, you know, we still like like every farm business I think in Scotland and in the UK in the world, um, it's still something that we're kind of you know always trying to maximise our financial return on the croft so that we can be here all the time. But another big challenge um, was the fact that we bought somewhere which had no farming infrastructure whatsoever. Right. So we had uh, the little um, wooden cabin that we're in today, which mm-hmm. we live in. Uh, there was an old stone byre, about 200 years old stone byre, which had half a roof. And then there was a, a derelict croft house. And then there was one kind of about sort of 20 year old fence that went right around the boundary <laughs> and that was it and had someone been farming it immediately prior to you buying it or had it been derelict for a wee while so it so yes and no really um it hadn't really been um actively farmed it had people living here for quite a few years before us okay. but they didn't have livestock um, the people before that were the original crofters. Right. So the original crofters were here for centuries. I mean, literally centuries. I mean, the, yeah. the stories from the croft is, is you know, amazing. You know, you yeah. can write a book on this place in itself. Yeah. Um, but there was a kind of a gap, I guess, of about 30 or 40 years where I think there was sort of no livestock activity whatsoever. You know, on the one hand, you're thinking, that's amazing, you've got this blank canvas. But when you're coming at it with no money, no background in agriculture, and no real plan as to what you're doing... <laughs> feels like a bit of a mountain to climb. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It feels like a bit of a mountain to climb. Yeah. But I think that's where, you know, we, we say we say here, you know, nature is our guide. So we use nature as our yeah, our guide to make, help us make decisions. And that's really simply because, you know, nature is a is a system um which we live and work in as part of. And if we can, you know, tap into working within the system, which is the most efficient system ever, it's beyond anything that humans could ever create. If we can build a business by mimicking what it is that happens in nature, then that's that's how we can build it. And that's where we started. Yeah, so you're not fighting against it. You're trying to Absolutely. work with it and makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? Absolutely. So what, what would you say is the aim of your business? I would say the aim of our business is to farm with our environment to provide food for our community. And I guess there's two kind of key parts there. So farm with the environment and provide food for the community. So... You know, like I've said, we're trying to work with nature, we're trying to work with natural processes. And that's everything from how we graze our animals to increasing things like woodland cover on the croft to trying to increase biodiversity in general through using pollinators such as honeybees. Mm-hmm. All these kind of things that we're trying to do. So that that's our kind of farming with nature aspect, farming with our environment. The other aspect is providing food for our commu- community. So... You know, at the end of the day, we are, you know, we are an agricultural setup and, you know, by our very trade, 
we produce food. Yeah. And we're very passionate about trying to keep our food produce and our food sales within a local area. And that's that's for a couple of reasons, I guess. And that's one, to keep food miles down. Uh, we're very conscious of, of everything that we do has to try and reduce emissions, uh, try and, you know, reduce our impact on climate change. So there's that aspect. But there's also another aspect, which is just this, we just really like the idea of local food and local community. And we think it's something that helps to build community. We're really trying to resist the, I guess, the temptation to start shipping our food. So since we did this farming life, you know, we've had lots of people say, you know, where can I buy this? Where can I buy that? When can I put in an order? And we always try and politely say, look, we we try and just cater for our local community. The reason we do that is to encourage people that aren't in our local community to find other people like us. So it's a way of our using our model to try and inspire others and help provide and build their market. So that if there's somebody in, I don't know, Kent, you know, wants to buy some Limbrek bacon, we say, well, find somebody local in Kent, support them, give them your money. And then you help to improve your kind of farming network in Kent. Definitely those are the two aspects, farming with the environment and food for the local community. Brilliant. How do you feel about the recent negative press about farming and climate change? You know, we've had a bit of a bashing in the in the national news recently. How does that? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a kind of a, an increasing generalisation, and so people use terms and say all farming is bad, all beef is bad, all everything is bad, yeah. and that's simply untrue. And I think particularly in this country and particularly, you know, locally and in lots of different areas, whenever you generalise, you put everybody in the same box and you go, there you go, you're all the same. And that's really unfair to to, to the industry, I think, in general. Our kind of response to that is, you know, there's something that we always kind of, we do this kind of hashtag on social media and we say, know your farmer. And so we go, hashtag know your farmer for certain things. Or we'll say, hashtag know your food, uh, hashtag know your beef. And it's whenever we kind of put certain posts out to do with our pigs, you know, or our cattle and in relation to the product that they're going to provide, we say, know what it is that you're eating and know the person that produces it. And then you can make up your own mind as to what it is that you're buying, what it is that you're supporting and what it is that you're putting into your body. You know, there's a there's a guy called um, Joel Salatin and he's a he's a farmer in America. He's a big regenerative agriculture farmer in America. And he's been a massive influence on us. And he he says, you know, he'll say, you know, most people nowadays, right, they know the name of their mechanic. They know the name of their doctor. uh, They know the name of their hairdresser. But how many people know the names of their farmers? And I mean, every single farmer that produces every single element of their food. Um, People won't even probably know one. So rather than, I guess, jumping on the bandwagon of saying, yeah, every every farmer is bad, go and find out for yourself. And then, you know, that can help change things. Yeah, I think that's really important about educating the public about where their food comes from. and Massively. Yeah, I mean, all the stuff in the, the press recently has, as you say, generalisation and they're picking up things from reports and it's getting reported wrong. And exactly. It's quite hard for the farmers to sort of fight back and say, actually, no, you're you're wrong because there's so much negative stuff out there, isn't there? Yeah. And it's hard to fight against it. But if you can start with your local community, that's a good place to start, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And then, and then you're creating... A, a, a sort of a combined voice to say, well, actually, no, that's not the case. Rather than a little, you know, an individual farmer going, oh, but I'm quite good. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're kind of, you've got all this community behind you going, no, actually, they're really good. And yeah. then you're you're kind of combating the negative with the positive. And, and I think that's, a, a, you know, it's the best way to 
to to promote anything is 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 get positive you know yes. celebrate things because yeah. then you inspire and you enthuse and you engage and you get more people on side rather than just going Arr. yeah you know yeah wading into arguments and just exactly not anywhere with it yeah. exactly yeah you mentioned regenerative farming there yeah. can you describe what you mean by that and how you're implementing it here Everything that we do at Limbrek is very much individual to Limbrek, but I guess that the main kind of models that we follow are one of regenerative farming and one of uh, what's called holistic management. So uh, regenerative farming is basically taking it as one step above sustainability. So it's looking at our land and trying to make sure that every decision that we make is driven by one that will have a positive outcome and that will, in, in, in summary, regenerate our land. So um, the main thing that we're always t- uh, focusing and targeting on is building soil, building organic matter, uh, keeping our soils healthy. That's that's the foundation of, of every farm business is yeah. the soil. Yeah. And so if we can continually regenerate our soil by following particular grazing patterns for animals, by working with our animals' natural instincts to always put more back than they take... Um, then that's us following this regenerative model. So it's always looking at what we're doing and making sure it's always regenerating the land. And I guess our overall business model is based on what's called holistic management. So holistic management comes uh, from a guy called Alan Savory, who um, is from, I think he's from Zimbabwe. Back in the 80s, he he was starting to see that there were large areas desertifying. And he thought it was as a result of overgrazing. And through various kind of observations, he realised that actually it was a a lack of grazing. It was a lack of having large herbivores as part of the system that was resulting in this desertification. So he came up with this way of um, managing farming units. And and when I say farming units, it's everything from, you know, five acres to 5,000 acres, you know, 500,000 acres based on three principles, which is an environmental principle, a social principle, and an economic principle. But what all of those principles are pinned on is the people who are driving it. So in this situation, it's, it's Sandra and I. Mm-hmm. And so everything that we do, as well as trying to figure out that it, or trying to assess that it will be regenerative, it's looking at its social and environmental and economic input. And really, it's a way of us keeping what it is that we want to do true in a very kind of busy world that we live in um, and looking after ourselves as well, because we all know that, you know, farmers today, they struggle with, you know, mental health is a massive yeah. aspect and farming today. If we're not happy, then we can't effectively do what it is here. Well, yeah. uh, so holistic management helps you really, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a toolkit and it just helps you really focus everything that what you're doing into delivering those kind of three outcomes all around you kind of um, being happy and well yourself. So how does that come into practice here? So what sort of techniques you're doing a bit of rotational grazing here, aren't you? So how do, how is that working out? So yeah, so we've so we have all sorts of teams. So okay. we call them our teams. Yeah. Um, and so we have our Highland cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, lots of hens. We have Oxford sandy and black pigs, and then we have our uh, black uh, black bee, well, our dark bees, type okay. of Scottish bee. Yeah. So our Highland cattle, um, they run in a, a mob. So okay. some people will refer to it as, as mob grazing. Yeah. Uh, we, we prefer to uh, refer to it as, as planned grazing, but you're moving them in a mob. Yeah. And so what happens is you're basically looking at uh, the cow. 
mm-hmm. and you're thinking in, in the wild situation. So if you if you were a, a bison, for example, or or a, one of the wild aurach from which you descended, you know, how would you be like? What would you be like in the wild? Um, and they would probably answer, well, we'd always be moving, and we'd always be moving because we're always looking for the tastiest bite. We're not really wanting to stand in areas where we've just pooped and peed. Yeah. And we're a bit worried about predators. So those yeah. are the three answers that the cow would give you. Adding into that, then the farming aspect, so our aspect, is we're looking at what they what they can do. And we're thinking, OK, that's great. What we also want to do is, because we're trying to, we've got an area that we're wanting grazed, we don't want them to overgraze it. Because that can damage the, the recovery of the grass. So... By tapping into what it is that the cow said, by always wanting to keep moving, we can ensure that they're not overgrazing areas. We can factor in long periods of rest, so up to 60 days if we can get it, okay. and we just keep them on the move. So uh, we use electric fencing, so that's our tool, yeah. set up paddocks, um, and so every day we move them into a new paddock, and this is particularly in the growing season. Yeah. In the winter time, uh, we do it slightly differently, so uh, we'll still keep them moving and we'll still give areas of ground rest they're less likely to be grazing especially towards the end of the winter when even they've kind of grazed all through their stockpile but what we trialed a little bit last year and what we'll be trialing a little bit more this year is something that's called bale grazing okay so bale grazing is when you quite literally pop a bale in a field no ring feeder and you just let them eat it and what you end up getting is quite a lot of and it's a term that we're trying to redress in our heads quite a lot of waste yeah so you maybe get sort of 20 percent of the bale is wasted but whenever you try and put your regenerative head on you're actually seeing the waste as being soil food yeah so that, that matter exactly yeah and so we did two areas of bale grazing last year and we we did it and we saw all this wasted hay on the ground and you're there going it's about 10 pounds worth of hay <laughs> your hay was expensive yeah. this year we really wanted to rake it off as well. <laughs> yeah. And so we thought we'll scatter it because, you know, you had these clumps. And there's a guy um, called Rob Havard down in the south of England who's, who's, you know, a real kind of icon for us. And we emailed him and he went, no, you know, <laughs> just leave it. We've watched those two areas that we bale grazed last year and the grass has come back thicker and denser really? than in other parts of the wow. field. So this year we're going to do it even more. Mm-hmm trial it a little bit even more and so we've we've actually bought in a little bit more hay than we did last year factoring in this I'm doing quote-unquote waste (laughs) (laughs) because it's not waste and actually seeing that as a as an investment yeah to help put the organic matter back into the soil so we're really really excited about it so that's our kind of cattle enterprise yeah it's our regenerative team then we have our pigs so we have we have two two groups and in the in summertime they're in the field so they're pasture and we move them about every seven days. So they have, a, again, an electric fence paddock, about 10 by 10 metres for four pigs, okay. roughly. Have you, only, have you got eight pigs? So We've got eight pigs. Yeah, so two, yeah. two groups of four. Okay. Yeah. Um, so about 10 by 10 metres uh, and, and a hen house, or sorry, a pig house that we can take apart and mm-hmm. move. Yeah. We let them in. We let them kind of graze. They'll graze for about two days. Yeah. And then they'll get their snouts in. They'll snuffle and break it up. And that's really useful because we've got a lot of moss in our grass. And that's as a result of, I, I, I guess, as a result of no grazing for lots and lots of years. Yeah. So the pigs break up a lot of the moss. Because pigs are very clean, the other area of their paddock, that's where their kind of toilet area is. And then after about seven days, we move them into the next paddock and then the kind of the process starts again. What it kind of can create is a bit of a mess. I mean, you yeah. look at it and it's a bit of a bomb crater. Yeah. And you're going, oh, goodness, you know, <laughs> one of our mantras is, you know, do not expose soil. Yeah. 
But what we do is as soon as they go out, we go back in and any of the turfs that have flipped over, we invert and, and cap the soil again. So we try and cover as much of the soil back over and we scatter a little bit of grass and, and wildflower seed on top of that. Okay. And then we see what happens. And this year, yeah, we're, we're noticing a real kind of boost in the growth in the areas that the pigs have been through. And we've, we've kind of grazed the cattle through areas that the pigs have been through before and they help to put, push in the grass and wildflower seed. So we're seeing, again, really positive impacts on that. Yeah. In the wintertime, the pigs went to the woodland. Okay. So we've got a lot of, I guess, really dense tussocky grass in the woodland. And the other thing that we don't have in the woodland is young trees. Right. We've got old trees, but we don't have young trees. And part of that's probably deer coming in. Yeah. But we think part of it is because there's just this almost kind of really thick mat. So there's no opportunity for seed to drop mm-hmm. and get to the Turn soil. Yeah. So the pigs go into the woodland and they break it up break up the tussocks and then we leave it to rest so they have they're quite a lot more kind of free ranging in the woodlands in the winter time yeah. and then we kind of manage that we, we we match it up with them um, cows in there as well in the so your your cows and pigs are both rotating around in the summer that sounds like a lot of logistics to figure <laughs> out what's going where do you have like set lines that you're going to put your fence up every time or do you kind of wing it a bit to begin with or is there and how big are the paddocks for you know your yeah. big ones are 10 by 10 but I don't think we've said how many cows you've got. So how many cows uh, are you nine. Around? Nine. So okay. last year we had six. This year we've got nine. Next year we'll we'll have twelve because we're calving next year, so we're kind of slowly increasing. Okay. But it's a really good question about how big are your paddocks because whenever we started, we did exactly the same thing. You know, we were pestering people, going, "Well, how many? You know, how yeah. big should the paddocks yeah. be?" You know, and people are going, "Well." I don't know what your what's on your ground. You know, I don't know yeah. what your uh, you know your forage quality is. I don't know what your forage diversity is. Um, I don't know what your animals are like. I don't know you know all these kinds of factors, and that's where you have to revert to the farming with your environment. Mm-hmm. So we don't. I guess we'll have an idea. So how you've kind of suggested, like, do you have lines that you follow? That's yeah. we'll say right. We'll start here, <laughs> and that's when you'll make a paddock. And then you observe and you think, am I happy with that? So, for example, with the cows, you think, okay, say we've had a 30 metre by 30 metre paddock, just for, you know, for an example. Have they taken too much? Have they not taken enough? Have they trampled enough? Have they not trampled? Or have they trampled too much? You know, you're you're kind of, you're continually monitoring and changing things as you go. And that's in part us learning our land, it's learning our cattle. Um, But it's a really important flexible aspect that we have to have because we're working with animals you yes. know yeah. yeah they do their own thing yeah and you're working with nature who's perfectly in control of everything she's doing we just have absolutely no idea what that is <laughs> yeah so we're trying to kind of understand it yeah so i think i think again it was something that rob havard said it's better to to kind of try something and not do it very well and fail rather than do something that you know really really well and get it right all the time you know yeah. you actually learn more from sometimes making mistakes. So are you coming back? You were saying, you're talking about the rest periods of the grass there. So are you generally mm-hmm. coming back 60 days? is quite a long time. So you must have to put up and take down fences a lot. Is, is that just what you spend? Your, <laughs> or does it feel like you're spending your whole life <laughs> moving fences? Or is it a payoff that you think, you know, it's worth it for the results you're getting? So I think it's 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 the latter. Yeah. Um, so 60 days are kind of, 
um, that's kind of what we aspire to. What we, what normally happens is that earlier in the year we we go you know when when the say for, for example in spring when the grass grows quicker yeah. we skim it. Okay. So that will be a shorter rest period of maybe thirty five to forty days, yeah. and it depends really on the size of paddocks, but. You know, we kind of, this time around, this is our third sweep. We're aiming for about 60 in this third sweep. So we've okay. slowed them down and they're kind yeah. of grazing a bit more. It's definitely something that you become more efficient at. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you're continually improving all the time. So we reckon on average, when you break it down into days, each daily move, so that's factoring in all the fence moving, um, which you can do in blocks. You can maybe create like five new paddocks in a row so you don't have any permanent fencing in between them you're just it's all electric exactly yeah Yeah. it's all electric within a kind of a a fenced field yeah i guess yeah so on average it's probably works out to about 40 minutes a day we reckon um so the actual cow move is five minutes yeah we've now got a better water system in place so we use a mobile water trough from a company called kiwi tech they're a they're a New Zealand company and they're also the ones that we use for our fencing because in New Zealand, you know, kind of mobile paddock grazing is all yeah. the rage. Yeah. You know, they, they totally have it nailed. Yeah. And so some of the kit that they have is just really, really good. Yeah. It's actually incredibly basic, but it's just really hardy, but it's easy to use and you can get out quick. That's what you need because if something's going to take you twice as long, you're not going to do it. No, <laughs> exactly. It's too much hassle for the benefit. Exactly. Yeah. But you know what we're what we're trying to do, and we, we'll I guess every year we'll see more and more. But what we're trying to do is, in effect, extend our grazing season. So we're trying to use this way of grazing to get the maximum we can out of the area that we have, and 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 kind of graze as far into the winter as we possibly can. So using a lot of stockpile that we've kind of left as they've moved on, they will come back to and eventually eat it all down. Yeah. And that's another reason why we have Highlanders. You know, we can do that with Highlanders because, yeah. you know, Highlanders turn, you know, the rough stuff into top quality meat. Yeah, um, yeah the hard days and they can withstand the conditions that, that you've got them in. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. 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 So how are you, me- are you measuring grass growth at all? Are you just going by eye? Are you using any sword sticks or plate meters or anything to sort of assess how things are going? Or We do it all by eye, yeah. yeah. Um, so... We've never used a plate meter. I think we have a sword stick. <laughs> but again, that's, I guess, coming back to, you know, whenever whenever you're coming into farming with no background in farming and you're using nature as your guide, all you've got are your eyes and ears yeah. to work with. And I suppose that's what we've started to develop is more of an eye and, and a memory of, you know, what it looked like before and what it looks like now. Uh, we try and take tons of pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got loads of pictures of just things that happen all the time yeah uh we're terrible at writing things down we should do that more (laughs) but a lot of it is just getting to know your ground yeah and and I think again you know now when we've been doing it for a few years people come to us and say where do I start you say well I can tell you where to start but that's about all I can tell you after that you just have to to and I suppose you're still it's early days you've only been doing it what a year and a half exactly yeah yes learning how you go isn't it exactly yeah you're doing some interesting work with cattle feed and feeding trees at the moment, oh, I yes. believe. I saw something about that on your Facebook. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because that's quite interesting. Yeah. So a lot of this this kind of fact is in part to stuff that we learned when we were working in conservation, but also actually um, to things that we've been observing since we moved up here and so since we started farming. So I guess the, the first one was whenever we worked in conservation, we worked down in the south of England and we worked in areas where they used to have these 
hundred hundred year old or you know sort of three two three four hundred year old pollards so these old trees that had been cut at head height they'd been cut at head height because they were uh, used as animal fodder in the winter time so a very kind of tr- traditional way of um feeding your animals was 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 cutting trees trees and drying the leaves and then mm-hmm. feeding them as part of your your winter diet so we always kind of learned about it from a from a kind of a tree management point of view you know mm-hmm. And, and that was really interesting. But then when we came up here, as I said, we started to talk to local farmers and we started to see ourselves, even in the short time that we've been here, that hay, which is something that we rely on buying in, yeah. is getting harder and harder to find. And hay is what we need for our system. So silage and haylage won't really work for us. So um, we thought, well, we, we can't, we don't have enough ground to grow our own hay. I mean, we might try cutting a little bit in the future, but you know, what could we grow for our animals in the wintertime using the land that we've got and not sacrificing our better ground yeah. um, where our animals spend most of their time in the summer? Um, what could we grow? And so that's when our, we kind of cast our minds back to when we were working as rangers and we thought, well, we'll grow trees. Mm-hmm. So um, we started to read up a little bit more about you know, the kind of historical practice. And it's actually not historical. A lot of countries, particularly in, in, in sort of Central Europe, still still, still do this. Right, okay. And it's a really kind of simple concept. So if we take the tree hay, for example, uh, we've planted about 3,500 trees, particularly for harvesting as tree hay. Yeah. And we've chosen species that are particularly um, well-suited to our area but also have a lot of medicinal and nutritional benefits for our animals. So we've uh, grown uh, a lot of willow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so willow has something in it called salicylic acid, and salicylic acid is something that you find in aspirin, so it's a natural pain reliever. Okay. So it's something that if animals have access to, they can actually self-medicate on if they have a sore head or a sore foot. Uh, willow has also got something called um, a tannin in its leaf, so um, tannins have antiparasitic properties. So there was a study done of, of sheep and goats um, and they were able they were allowed to browse on willow leaves and they were actually able to reduce their uh, worm burden by up to 50%. Wow. So there's all, you start to read all these kinds of things and there's another uh, fact, um, something about how willow is really good at accessing selenium, which is something that can often be deficient um, in soils, um, but it's really good at accessing it and then bringing it up into its leaf and making it available. Yeah. So you start to kind of learn all of these things and you think... Maybe it's not so daft, yeah. this idea yeah. that we're planting trees as animal feed. And so then we came across, a, a there's a Forestry Commission document that was produced, I think, in 1999. It was just one of their guidance notes. And it, it breaks down the annual percentage that um, cow, and, and I think it does sheep and goats as well, can access from trees, uh, as well as grass and, and other kind of things. And it sets it at 12%. So a cat—that's almost a—it's almost a month's yeah. worth of feed yeah. that, uh, if if given the access, a cat, you know, a cow could could browse, and in some situations that can increase up to fifty-five percent. You're starting to see that actually trees can form quite a large part of your animal's diet. So we identified areas on a lower kind of field where it's a little bit wet. It's it's there's a lot of kind of bog myrtle in terms of kind of forage availability. It's very very low. So we've planted these tree hay crops. Um, we anticipate within three to five years we'll start to harvest them. And what we'll do is we'll probably pollard them, so cut them at kind of head height. And we'll take the branches off and we'll bundle them up tightly um, and hang them in our barn and dry them as 
tree hay for the winter time, and it's something that we can add as a supplement into the hay that and we're you would buying. You just put in. them out in the bundles, and the cat would pull the leaves off themselves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's something we'll do for the pigs as well. Okay. So it'll be cattle and, and pig feed that we use. We've been experimenting with with things this summer, you know, because obviously our tree hay hasn't grown yet. So yeah. as we've been kind of cutting different trees back in yeah. um, the summer, we've been um, trialing bundling them up. So we've got some examples in our barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been feeding them out to the animals, and um, yeah, they're they're certainly interested in, in eating them. Okay. Um, the pigs love the sticks, yeah. so they'll strip the bark off the sticks, and then okay. they'll play with them. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of kind of other aspects like of an it. enrichment thing for yeah, absolutely yeah. That's yeah. Really interesting. Um, Is there anyone else in Scotland doing it that you know of or that you've come across? I, I think there's there's a few people that are doing tree hay, yeah, mostly yeah. smallholders actually, okay. yeah. um, mostly kind of smallholders who are really trying to maximise yeah the, everything that they can find on their ground. It sounds quite labour intensive, so I guess on a bigger scale it wouldn't work because you wouldn't have the time to, you know, if you had a hundred cows, yeah, <laughs> to provide enough. You know, that's a lot of pollarding and then lugging piles of wood back. But I guess well, on a small scale, it's perfect, isn't it? And I think this is where you start to really celebrate the capacity of small scale farming yeah. uh, and especially agroecological farming. You know, and farm, you know, you think you look at our landscape of, you know, a few hundred years ago and there were there were small farms everywhere. Yeah. And, that you know, the, 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 the labour force was much more kind of dispersed amongst the community. But people would come together and do these kind of projects together yeah. um, and, and look into the future you look at what small farms can do in a small area and the you know the amount of food they can produce and the amount of things they can grow and, and, and the diversity of it and I think it's actually a real strength of small farms you know if you can kind of tap into all these little things oh, absolutely. And, and then do it yeah a great diversity um, of products as you say is, is that's bound to be more sustainable than exactly. focusing on one one product exactly okay. yeah and, and we always say to people you know if if at the end of the day we, we, we grow all this tree hay and the cattle just go, no, I'm not eating that. You know, very worst case scenario, we've created shelter in an area where there was no shelter before, created great habitat for wildlife in an area where we're not actually taken away from the, the kind of the, the you know, the, the forage that's there. Uh, and, we've, you know, firewood crop for us. Yeah. So, so really it's a kind of a, a win-win, you sort of see it. And are the livestock able to graze amongst the trees that you planted at the moment or have you got it totally fenced off? So the other planting that we've done, that's all fenced off. Okay. Uh, so we did, uh, we've done um, a new native broadleaf woodland on our hill ground. Mm-hmm. So that's about 12 hectares, uh, about 17,500 native broadleaf trees. That you planted? That we planted. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was our first wow. job. That's that was our first job. trees. <laughs> we had one month to do it in. I know. 17,000 well, trees yourself. Yeah, <laughs> that was in... We did that in March 2017. We put all those trees up there. So they're starting to, you can see them starting to poke above the heather. But that was a really, that was a really good project because that was when we removed here and we thought, right, what we do, what do we do? You know, we've got 150 acres, what do we do with this? And we looked at the hill ground and we saw that there was kind of Scots pine mm-hmm. starting to come up it. And we thought, well, it, it looks like it's trying to reforest itself. So, you know, this area doesn't have a lot of broadleaf woodland. We could you know plant broadleaf to help it so you know from lots of our you know and from our conservation backgrounds it was great you know yeah. we were thinking oh you know proven biodiversity blah blah yeah. blah but we were also starting to think but we've got to run a farm business you know mm-hmm. we're excluding animals from that area which in, in total is probably about 40 acres oh, right. that's so going to be fenced there's a big chance. area yeah. of hill ground where we're not going to be able to you know put our animals out does this does this work 
uh, whenever we sat and down and figured it out from a, from a kind of a business point of view, we decided that it did make sense. One, uh, financially, in that we could pay ourselves a wage because we did it through a Scottish forestry grant scheme. Okay. So because we did all the work ourselves, with the exception of the deer fence, we were able to generate a bit of money for yeah. ourselves. We were able to sell the carbon on the trees, oh, so okay. which is a new thing that you can yeah. do. Um, so we were able to raise some money uh, by selling the carbon that our trees sequestrate over, I think it's a 60-year so period. how does that work? Is there a company that you sell it to and then they sell it on to, you know, like a taxi firm or a tech <laughs> firm or someone that's trying to offset their carbon? Is that yeah. how it works? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a really great, you know, it's a really great system for, for to encourage people to do projects like this. You know, yeah. carbon sequestration is a big thing, which everybody seems to be talking about it, yeah. you know, in grasslands and in, in, in woodlands. If you can find a financial incentive to do that, which will help to mitigate against the fact that you're losing grazing ground yeah. for a certain amount of time, yeah. then that's brilliant. So we were able to do that. So we were able to kind of get a bit of money on. But what, what again, we were looking at was was climate change. So we were thinking, you know, we're getting, you know, we're, we're having periods of drought, you know, yeah. really hot, hot summers when our cows don't want to stand in the middle of a field. They want to be in a woodland. Yeah. We're getting high winds. You know, we face Cairngorm direct. You know, we, we get 100 mile per hour here in the winter yeah. time. You know, we'll get snow and rain that comes in horizontal. And all those are things that we need shelter and shade to protect our animals. And with things kind of going the way that they're going, with more, more and more weather extremes predicted, if we've created an area of sheltered hill grazing rather than exposed open hill grazing, we were thinking that's more protection for our animals in the future. And by planting broad leaves, you're then in, in, introducing all this tree fodder as well that yeah. they'll be able to browse on, as well as the changing diverse flora beneath. Because you know, so, trees, by their very nature, improve the soil. Yeah. So they'll change the ground flora beneath. Uh, and improve it to rather than just heather to you know possibly other species will come in we don't really know yeah um but it, it was thinking about it from our business point of view but also from from the financial point of view what company do you use to do that uh, uh they call forest carbon okay yeah. and then so do they pay you per tree or how does it work uh i think i think it I think it's per tree, okay. um, but what what because we did it under a Scottish forestry grant scheme, mm-hmm. um, we had to plant at sixteen hundred trees per hectare. Yeah, that's the kind of standard. Yeah. and so they worked it out as, and I think so. In total, we planted it was about twelve hectares, and so they gave us a a payment rate. I think it was maybe maybe it was per hectare based on the number of trees. Like, I can't okay. remember exactly yeah. how they work out the figure. Yeah, um, but it will be based on your area size and your density of planting and what they're trying to do is expand it i think there's all this talk certainly in the woodland world of going well if you're going to do it for woodland creation why don't why don't we do it for hedgerows you know people are planting high density in hedgerows why don't we do it for agroforestry products and then even people are starting to talk well why don't we do it for grasslands the whole kind of underpinning of all kind of farm businesses and carbon sits in your soil you know how much you kind of how much you're sucking in yeah. you know, through your organic matter in the carbon yeah. cycle how much you're sucking in all the time we all know that we're releasing lots of carbon by driving to the shop and you know buying in our feed we all know that but how much are we getting back into the soil if there was a way of measuring you know kind of that in the soil aspect and you could you know you could prove that every year you were increasing your your kind of your carbon sequestration of a you know ability yeah Again, what an amazing way to, you know, release funds for, for farmers and it kind of encourages all to look after our soils. And well, I think going forward with the, with the climate change thing and, and, you know, carbon footprint, people are going to be more aware of 
of their individual actions, but yeah. it'd be interesting for farmers rather than selling it on for someone else to offset their carbon because we're under all this criticism with the, mm-hmm. you know, the beef industry and all the methane that's being produced to say, well, actually, we're storing this amount. We can't Absolutely. measure that at the moment because there's, you know, they're working on it for measuring how much grass. Yeah. Uh, sequestration there is the science will be really interesting in helping us to understand you know what's the best way to to manage it you know to make sure that we're maximizing the carbon sequestration you know yeah. all the reading that we have done is all around kind of tall grass grazing which is what we do so you mm-hmm. know you're kind of always kind of allowing your your grassland to recover you're keeping kind of a deep root le- le- level um and you've got all this kind of grass above which you're kind of you know your solar panels you know that's yeah. your kind of photosynthesis and the more solar panels you can have you know, the more you can kind of keep these systems going. So, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's that's going yeah. on at the minute. So we've talked a little bit about some of the products that you produce here. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what you're selling to the public and how, yeah. you, how you go about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a kind of a, a range of products that we have to sell. And it all started with our eggs, which we started with a little uh, honesty box at the top of our track. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just from a few hens that we had. Yeah. We started to do a lot on social media, so we started to, uh, we talked about our ladies who lay, which are our hens, and we started to talk about how, you know, the hens do this and the hens do that, and, you know, they're fed an organic feed because we, you know, we try and not, you know, have any inputs on the croft, and you know, we, we, we built up a story, a true story of how it is that the hens live and, and work on, on the croft. We were starting to see that as part of our regenerative grazing, hens were really useful mm-hmm. because uh, they're really good moss scratchers. And we have loads of moss in our grass. So we wanted to get our hens out in the field. So we built something called an eggmobile, which is a mobile hen house. So we have an army of hens that live in this mobile hen house in the field. And their job is to scratch. They eat worms. They, eat cow pat, uh, they work through the cow pats and eat the worms. They, they're really useful as well when the cows are nearby. They do a lot of fly control. Uh, okay. So they'll be jumping yeah. up and down. Yeah. So anyway, we got all these. We got more hens, but we thought, well, we need a market to sell these hens too. And we were getting conscious at this stage anyway of trying to, to kind of get much better at our financial planning. How can we maximise um, the return on our, on our kind of produce that we sell? So... Um, if we wanted more hens, we needed a market. We were only ever going to stay to stay within a local market mm-hmm. uh, to stay true to what it was that we wanted to do. So we started something called Egg Club. Okay. So Egg Club is a, a subscription-based club. So twice a week, uh, we do a delivery into Granton, which is just yep. sort of five miles down the road. Uh, so we're in and out of Granton all the time. And what we do is we say to people, if you sign up for a monthly or an annual subscription, then every week you will get a box of fresh laid ladies who lay eggs delivered right to your door so egg cup filled up within a few weeks um based on the amount of hens that we had and what it meant was that we always knew that the eggs had a a final market so we didn't need to be thinking oh my goodness there's you know was that just through social media that that so that was just through social media yeah Yeah, and was that after this farming life started or was it just that was just through the local community. So this yeah. was this was a year ago, okay. pretty much actually a year ago today. Yeah. So this was the last end of last summer. We started Egg Club, and what we basically were starting to realise we were we were giving ourselves was a monthly salary. Mm-hmm. So monthly people were setting up a standing order to pay money into our bank account in advance for their eggs to be delivered. So it was a really it was a really good model. And so we started to go, you know, we thought, oh, gosh, this is a really actually quite a good way of, of doing it. And what we were doing the whole time was every time we were going out and delivering, we were talking to our customers. And, you know, then we would be able to say, oh, 
you know, we've got some pork sales coming out next week. And then they'd go, oh, I'm interested in the pork. So as a model, we really liked it because we were out and about in the community. Yeah. Delivery wise, um, it was really easy. Uh, but we decided this year to kind of step it up a mark in that we've now, we try and do at least half of all our deliveries by bike. <laughs> so we cycle, I cycle into seat. Sandra doesn't do all oh, the yeah. work. <laughs> Sometimes I cycle. So I cycle into Granton and do all the, the deliveries by bike. Um, okay. And again, we use that as a way to engage people with, um, you know, kind of carbon footprint and mm-hmm. food miles. And it's another kind of unique selling point. So Egg Club is full. Uh, we have a wait, we could probably fill it again. Wow. You know, it, it's got a mass, it's got a waiting list. Um, and it's just really, really popular. And all we're doing is selling just farm eggs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're a bit mucky. They're different sizes. They're different shapes. They're different yeah. colors. But people love it. With our meat sales, so we started off that by social media as well. So just whenever we had, you know, it's obviously seasonally available whenever the animals go off. So we did a few meat boxes and that mm-hmm. seemed to go pretty well. But I find it particularly stressful when it comes to selling time because I always kind of, you know, I'll, I'll kind of press send on, you know, the email that we sent or the, or the post that we've just kind of put out. And then I just sit and watch it. And if, if it hasn't all sold within five minutes, I go, nobody's going to buy it. We're going to have a, you know, we're going to have a freezer full of pork for, yeah. you know, three years or whatever which has never happened yeah it was a way of thinking right well how can we how can we get around that stress so in part it's come about just by increasing presence Mm -hmm. so more people knowing us so you're kind of widening your market but we really liked egg club um as a model and so we decided to create a new club um but one that was based on adding value to our produce so it's incredibly hard to get the money back from your produce that it costs to produce so for example our pigs are on organic feed it's it's quite a high premium they're regeneratively grazed even when we use that story even when we say you know they've had this special feed we only ever really break even on our on our on our sort of product so we thought how can we how can we change that this is not a really good way of running a business so we installed a small butchery on the croft mm-hmm. um, we accessed something called the Dean Organic Loan, um, which is run by the Organic Research Centre. This is the diversification loan, interest-free for five years. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, if we can get that loan and if it can pay itself off as an enterprise, then that's a really good thing because we can then add value to our meat. So rather than having, you know, maybe a, a kilo's worth of meat that's worth, you know, five pounds, if we can make that £20 by curing it, smoking mm-hmm. it, you know, possibly air drying it in the future, um, making artisan produce, you know, uh, you know, sausages and meat using herbs that we've grown on the croft, you know, all these kinds of things and create a club that people pay a subscription to, then we're going to get more, more for our money. So we started the Little Mountain Meat Club okay. and we asked people to sign up for an annual subscription. So a year in advance payment. And every month they get just a little bit of added value meat. It works out at about £6.50 a month. But it's something really, really special that we've crafted ourselves on the croft. And so we launched that in summer of this year. Mm-hmm. It's full again. We're slowly going to release more places as, they, mm-hmm. as, as we kind of get comfortable. But our goal is always to kind of create real quality before quantity so we want to make sure that what we're doing is really good so we kind of see our customers as being part of of what it is that we do here so we say if you like it brilliant if you don't like it brilliant you need to help us create this because if we can then we've got this amazing facility if we could help other small producers do the same 
add value and get more financial return, make their business more viable, then that would be amazing. So that's how we've kind of done everything. And yeah, a lot of it has been through social media and just kind of getting ourselves out there as much as we can. Obviously, you found a little bit of agricultural fame, probably, <laughs> rather than national fame. But it's a very popular programme on This yeah. Farming Life. How mm-hmm. did you get into that? And how did you find it? So that came about uh, through Facebook, through social okay. media. So a friend of ours, a farmer friend who's just down the road, who's kind of t- took us under a wing, really, when we, we moved here, tagged us in a post that said that This Farming Life, we were looking for new, new people. Mm-hmm. Considering the fact that we don't have a... TV and we'd never kind of seen the program before I didn't really know anything about it um we just thought we'd well I thought I'd put us in for it <laughs> and then one day Sandra who's just come in um said uh there's a there's something like there was a voicemail from the BBC and I said oh yeah so <laughs> to tell you pro- <laughs> so that's probably because um and so they came out and they did like a, I guess sort of they were here for about two or three hours and they did like a screen test and okay. asked us some questions and we went for a bit of a walk and then we didn't hear anything for quite a few months uh, we just thought oh well we're probably probably not in it and then we got a call basically in the new year that said okay we want to follow you and we're coming out next week wow and that was it and so how often did they come out? I think it was a full calendar year, right? Was it? Uh, it was nine months. Nine months. And yeah. how often did they come out in that nine months? Uh, it was a mixture, but I would say they were maybe out uh, two or three times a month. Oh, wow. Roughly. Oh, so it's quite, yeah. it quite a big commitment for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, re- it really yeah. was. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the, you know, the, the beauty of it was that we went in it, into it completely naively. Yeah. And not really, yeah. <laughs> not really knowing. Yeah. And, you know, we'd people say, oh, you know, you should watch it beforehand. And we kind of meant to, but I kind of, in some ways, I'm quite glad that we didn't because, yeah. you know. It didn't um, sway you at all. You were just being totally yourselves, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so did they come out at set times? Did you know, did, did you try and plan exciting things to be happening when they were out or did they just sort of turn up and film whatever was going on? So it was more driven by us. Okay. So they could say, right, you know, what have you got coming up in the next few weeks? And we would say, well, you know, we've got, you know, we've got a cow move or we're, you know, we're going off to Thameston to buy animals or whatever. And then they would sort of pick and choose what it was that they wanted yeah i think you know we, we were we were always going to be the sort of the new entrant crofters yeah. and that was kind of very much the theme of our story was kind of setting up from scratch yeah and so i think they were quite keen to film things like you know the first time going to a livestock mart the first time we shared our sheep yeah, first time so we got cows on sorry for sandra with <laughs> yeah. the sheep that was awful you, you don't want to be filmed the first time doing anything <laughs> no. i wouldn't have thought it was something like wrangling sheep it's just not exactly not easy is it so yeah no and you know, last year for us, you know, we'd had, we basically had two years building up to last year, which, you know, two years of planning, two years of raising the money, two years of, you know, fencing, all this kind of stuff. And then it came to last year. So last year was a really, really big year for us. And, you know, it's just the start, you know, yes. really. And, 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 and on the one hand, we got to the end of last year and we were absolutely exhausted. Yeah. And we were, we were properly exhausted. And I think the one thing that we've really enjoyed watching this farming life is that we laughed a lot and we really like that because, you know, we are, I guess we're quite serious about what it is that we're trying to do here. You know, we're really trying to provide, you know, build a really kind of productive, viable farming unit that's, that's based on, on nature, but one that can be, you know, used in other parts of Scotland or the world or whatever, you know, we're really passionate about 
you know, really good food, high animal welfare, all these things. And we really wanted to get these messages across. And sometimes we go, did they get that bit about regenerative grazing? You know, <laughs> you're there kind of going, oh, you know, but actually I think it's in some ways made us a lot more accessible to more people who are yeah. just really liking what it is that we're, we're trying to do. Well, it's anyway. such a popular show. And I think it's because it shows the human side to farming. For sure. It? And the connection that you've got with your food. Your yeah. Farm. So the, the term women in agriculture is a relatively new one. Yeah. Um, there was a big Scottish government report that came out, I think it was 2016, 2017, about the role of women in agriculture. And the Farm Advisory Service, we've got these mm-hmm. women in agriculture discussion groups off mm-hmm. the back of that. Do you think there's a need for women only, women in agriculture group? It's it's a funny, it's a good question because I think it's it's very, in some ways it's very individual to what your experiences have been. So we've had a really positive experience. So we've had a really positive experience whereby, you know, since we started here, um, we've never felt that, obviously, that anybody has looked at us in anything less than just Lynn and Sandra, yeah. which is which is really nice. But I'm really conscious that not everybody has that um, experience. You know, it could be, um, you know, you know, in marriage situation or a farm succession, you know, situation. You know, historically, I guess it's always gone to the son rather than yeah. the daughter. You know, and there's a lot of kind of unsung kind of, you know, women heroes in in the history of agriculture, whereby you know, yeah, the man's out, you know, doing you know, sort of what the man did on the farm, but actually the woman's doing jobs that are just as important, and you know, she's the farmer too. You know, all these yeah. kind of other aspects to it. And and I think that's really starting to change in some respects, just because more and more women are finding their voice in agriculture. So it might not be that there's more of us. It might just be that there's more people speaking about it. I, I don't know, you know, yeah. um, but I think having the woman in agriculture group is, is really positive because it, it gives people an opportunity who maybe aren't experiencing things the way that we have done mm-hmm. to have a community, to have a, have a support network and then to have a, a bit more of a collective voice when they might not want to. Or might not be able to say it themselves. Yeah. For me, it's about the community yeah, and like yeah. a support group, for, a network. For yeah. yeah. So, what what drives you personally? Why are you doing what you're doing? Uh, well, Limbrek has become our life. Literally, it is 365 days, 24 seven. It is everything that we do. It's kind of everything that defines us, and it's something that we love. I guess, with every bone in our body. We love doing what it is that we're doing. And it's because we all see the way the world is changing. You know, people are becoming more and more disconnected, not just from their food, but from the environment. Uh, you know, we're seeing mass kind of environmental damage. Uh, we're, we're all getting, we all seem to be getting sicker. You know, mm-hmm. we seem to be spending more and more every year on the NHS. We seem to be struggling more and more with, with our mental health. And there's all these things that are kind of coming about. And our, our belief is that it's because we've just totally separated ourselves off from the natural world, which we're actually a really intrinsic part of. And so our drive here is to create a, a bridge, but a, a bridge that's accessible for, you know, from somebody coming to London versus, you know, somebody coming from the rural area is to create a bit of a bridge whereby people can come and see how you can still work and, and live off the land and you can still you know, pay your bills and you can still, you know, do all the normal things that everybody else does, but in a way in which you're working much more in harmony with your environment. So you're, you know, you're using, uh, you know, you're using animals to regenerate the soils, which, which, you know, then the, the cattle will eat and turn into beef and produce this amazing high quality product. You know, it's, it's, it's create, it's, it's creating all those bridges that, that we've lost. And I think that there's a real appetite for it. 
because as a as a culture we just we just seem to always be arguing you know it's either you know you should eat meat or you shouldn't eat meat you know and and if if you shouldn't eat meat then it's okay to fly it in from somewhere you know on the other side of the world none, none of these things are black and white and we need to start talking to each other and educating and just being more engaged with um with with nature and and it sounds you know i know some people might listen to that and think oh that's that's very fluffy that's you know that but it's actually it's, it's actually not it's actually very very real nature is a system it's very very efficient and we're part of it so we should try and engage with it a bit more and that's what we try and do engage people with what it is that we do brilliant so how, what is success for you and how would you measure it oh goodness that's an incredibly good question so i think success will come in many different many different ways um I think success for us is is our own happiness. Mm -hmm. So are we, you know, waking up every morning and going, yes, <laughs> we're crofting. And are you? Uh, yes, oh, yeah, we do. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're quite tired. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's maybe after yeah. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've never lived a life that's so invigorating, that's so challenging, that's so inspiring, that's so exciting, that's just everything in a nutshell. Um so that success is, is waking up every day and having that feeling. Um, and I think success as well is, um, is, is how other people respond. Mm -hmm. So we do things like farm tours and stuff this year. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're in a very open setup. We're quite happy for people to, you know, to come and see what it is that we do. And that was why we started the tours, because we were kind of getting inundated with people. And we said, OK, we need to kind of funnel you into this yeah. slot. Yeah. But it's getting people come out and then they'll say... I never realised that or I never thought about it like that. Or, you know, one woman came and, and saw our pigs in the field and she said, I've never seen a pig in a field before. You know, all these kind of realisations that people have and and it's all part of our kind of education. And, and when that then goes with them, when that information that they've learned helps them maybe make better food buying choices or maybe makes... Um, uh, considerations about their their own carbon footprint because we talk a lot about climate change and our own impact you know maybe all of those if, if, if that happens then that's success for us as well and that's something that's a lot harder to measure because unless people yeah. tell you you don't know yeah those are all successes for us and I'd say, I would say one final success is whenever we can sit down to an evening meal where we look at it and 100% has been grown or raised on this crop that's winning we feel very smug with ourselves <laughs> <Are you> <laughs> We go, look at this, look at this. <laughs> this is amazing. So that's that's a little bit of success there. <laughs> okay, so thank you, Lynn, for taking the, the time to talk to us today. Okay. And thank you to Sandra for slogging away outside so that you could be <laughs> here talking to us. And um, you've given us a real insight into your business, which is brilliant. The Farm Advisory Service run 11 women in agriculture groups across Scotland, to which all women who are involved with agriculture are welcome. You can find out more about FAS and the work we're doing with women in agriculture on our website www.fas.scot or if you need advice, call the helpline on 0300 323 0161.